I'm Alex Mosed. Welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. It's Friday, so we've got a, a, a multimedia-heavy session for everyone. I hope everyone had a good end of their week, all things considered. You know, there's this article out three days ago, and it says tech titans dominate U.S. stock, mar- stock market. Basically, it's FAMGA. It's Microsoft, Apple, Google, uh, Facebook, Amazon account for 20%, more than 20% of the market cap of the entire S&P 500. Uh, This reflects our estimate that platforms would account for, um, I think it was like a a quarter of all the profits or something of of the S&P 500. Um, by like 2023 or something. I don't ex- exactly remember it, but whatever the prediction was, it was in the book. We're way ahead of schedule on that. Um, Platt's been killing it. You know, Platt year to date. This is the platform uh, basket, right? Platform ETF. It's down 5% year to date since it came out in May of 2019. It's up 5%. Platt's doing its thing. Platform stocks are doing very well. Um, That's even considering you have Booking.com and Expedia and Yelp and Uber and Lyft um, and Uber and Lyft in in Platt. It's still doing well. And why this is relevant is because we see that these large tech monopolies are just continuing to get stronger, even in these pandemics or even in you know these down cycles. You're seeing the the large tech monopolies, which are platforms, um, strengthen their position, continue to invest in growth because they have such healthy balance sheets and such crazy multiples. And you see that happen in in the sense of they're rebounding much faster than the rest of the stock market, right? So investors are kind of fleeing to safety and saying, oh, well, of course, the tech companies are going to do well. So the the these tech companies these large tech monopolies these platform stocks have rebounded much faster than uh, the more traditional peers you know that was that why you see that article about um the valuations the multiples and the market cap of of these of famga um now accounting for more than 20% of the S&P 500 by market cap now you see this as being a problem when you then remember what we were talking you know many months ago about about you know just tech regulation we haven't heard as much about tech regulation uh given the current state of affairs in the world but this article came out yesterday can't get my days right um amazon scooped up data from its own sellers to launch competing products you know this is the wall street journal and they have quotes in here from their amazon's associate general counsel telling congress in july we don't use individual seller data to compete with businesses on the company's platform. And basically they found employees in ex employees uh, in Amazon to say here, you know, um, Amazon has said it has restrictions in place to keep private label executives, private label executives at Amazon. So the people launching their own white label products from accessing, accessing data on specific sellers in its marketplace. In interviews, former employees and a current one said those rules weren't uniformly enforced. Employees found ways around them. According to some former employees who said using such data was a common practice, 
that was discussed openly in meetings they attended. We knew we shouldn't, said one former employee who accessed the data and described a pattern of using it to launch and benefit Amazon products. Surprise, surprise. But at the same time, we are making Amazon branded products and we want to sell them. Some executives had access to data containing proprietary information that they used to research best-selling items they might want to compete against, including on individual sellers on Amazon's website. If access was restricted, managers sometimes would ask an Amazon business analyst to create reports featuring the information. So, you know, they ask someone else who has access, say, hey, can you pull this report and send it to me? In other cases, supposedly aggregated data was derived exclusively or almost entirely from one seller. They're saying, oh, we had pressure from management. You know, we wanted, we needed to have growth. And yada, yada, yada. So does this come as a surprise? No, it doesn't come as a surprise. If you've been listening to the show, we've literally been talking about this for months. You know, I think the funny thing is, is the funny thing about this to me, I mean, it's not funny what Amazon is doing, but the funny thing to me is that it's taken the Wall Street Journal like six to nine months to actually catch up. Why aren't they reporting on this back in last summer when Amazon is testifying in front of Congress or in the fall when you had all the stuff going on with the EU and Ms. Vestager and all that kind of stuff? I mean, here's this one video I found. I mean, we spoke about this many times. This video here, is Amazon competing with third-party sellers fairly? Um, the answer is obviously no. October th- 23rd, 2019. I mean, let's listen to this. Whoever wrote this, what you should do is go find the product manager's emails where they're cutting the third-party sellers out from underneath them by getting the purchase order and going directly to the manufacturer. We covered it back in October where Amazon's competing. And what they're doing is they're going to these third-party sellers. They're asking them to source, you know, who are you buying this product from? And of course, they're using this information. Um, The problem is that no one is able to regulate this or enforce this. And this is where you would expect the FTC or the DOJ to step in. And they've, I don't know, they've basically just taken a complete backseat to this. Now, this isn't the only place that we're seeing this. Okay, this is just one example with Amazon, but we're now seeing this in its own way with Facebook. So we have actually a number of examples here with Facebook. So you have this here. From the New York Post, Um, Facebook's fact checkers are the real fake news after censoring the Post story. With Facebook, it's about regulating the content on Facebook. Now, I'll give Facebook credit in the sense that they aren't creating their own content. But where they're getting into trouble is the curation of that content. And I think ultimately what Facebook needs to do is decentralize the curation. Uh, of of what you see in your Facebook feed, right? They've tried to take this on where they say, we are going to curate your newsfeed. We, Facebook, we have the algorithms, we have the human manpower to comply with these rules, and we are going to combat fake news. Facebook has taken that responsibility on themselves. They're spending billions of dollars to roll this whole thing out. And they're just never going to be able to do it correctly. There's always going to be issues with this. And so I think the solution here, and I'm going to provide examples about how the solution could work as we look at three different examples of how this is becoming a problem with Facebook. 
The solution is to open this up and platformize it. So all of these news media uh, groups, whether it's the New York Post, we have another example from Politico, and then our third example is from Reuters. Every media organization is getting killed. Their, their, their revenues have fallen off a cliff. They're struggling to survive. They basically don't really have a good business model anymore. So what everyone is trying to figure out is this fake news thing. How do I trust this? The problem with like news and figuring out what's real or what's fake is there's a lot of opinion involved in that, right? There's a lot of, you know, not all news is so objective. Not everything is black and white. There's a lot of, there's a big subjective nature to news and information. And so it's very hard to thread that needle correctly. So they should platformize this, right? Where I could subscribe to my own filter, to my own curator on Facebook, for example, right? Where I could subscribe to either the New York Post or the Politico or the Reuters curated feed of information for me. Now, this is not all articles written by the New York Post or Politico or Reuters, but you basically have fact-checking news organizations that are going to go in and be able to help the reader have a sense of trust in saying, hey, is this information real? Is it not? And the reader can now put that faith and that trust into the news media organizations that they have been reading or, or they like to read that content, right? And we found that a lot of media organizations kind of have their own political slant, um, even if they try to say that they don't. Everyone, each one of them kind of has their own political slant. So if you could just say, hey, I want to subscribe to the Reuters or the New York Post kind of um, fact-checking service, fake news-checking service, Facebook could still have its own fact-checking fake news service. But you could basically kind of layer these things in and you could pay. It's a service, right? It takes a lot of time to go and read these articles, to maybe say, hey, you know, a lot of this article is true, but this fact here we're not really sure about. Um, and, and you could help the reader kind of have that second opinion while reading through popular articles. That's my concept here. And basically, so the New York Post is saying, hey, we wrote an article. Yeah, the Post ran an opinion piece saying that we couldn't trust China's story about the origins of coronavirus. He argued that the virus might have jumped to the human population thanks to errors at a Chinese laboratory in Wuhan rather than via that city's now notorious wet market. The piece was widely read until Facebook stepped in. The social media giant's fact checkers decided that this was not a valid opinion. If you tried to share this article on Facebook, the social network stuck a false information alert on top saying that the finding was checked by independent fact checkers and preventing your friends from clicking to connect to the original article to see for themselves. Obviously, this also is going to be crammed down much farther in Facebook's recommending algorithm, right? So if the fact checkers are saying it's fake news, it's not going to, the algorithm isn't going to promote it as heavily. That's, that's I think, a, a pretty obvious given. So you have this problem, right? Then you have uh, this issue from Politico, where coronavirus protests test Facebook's free speech pledges. And basically, there are protests going around the country in the United States with people that are protesting outside in their cars or 
some of them standing and hopefully social distancing. So the company, Facebook, has taken steps so far, blocking protesters from using Facebook to organize in-person rallies in California, New Jersey, and Nebraska, but not in other places such as Michigan, Texas, and Virginia. Facebook's partial takedowns were still enough to bring a political pushback, right? It's taking the post down. If you're saying, hey, we're going to go do a rally, uh, we're going to go protest, you know, shelter in place. And we took down these posts, but then they didn't take it down in all the places. And they're just in a constant free speech predicament. And the free speech predicament continues, which is now to Vietnam. And, and, and Facebook has, has actually confirmed that they did this. So Facebook's local servers in Vietnam were taken offline early this year, slowing local traffic to a crawl until it agreed to significantly increase the censorship of anti-state posts for local users. So they had the telecom companies basically uh, block Facebook. The restrictions were carried out by state-owned telecom companies. They knocked the servers offline for around seven weeks, meaning what Facebook was kind of rendered gone for seven weeks in Vietnam. In an email statement, Facebook confirmed that it had reluctantly complied with the government's request to restrict access to content, which it has deemed to be illegal. This is the Vietnamese government deeming this content to be illegal, and Facebook wasn't taking it down. Basically, look, Facebook is never going to win this free speech, you know, them being able to figure out free speech. The government has clearly, at least for the time being, decided to not get involved in this. And I think, again, by Facebook trying to act as this curator in chief, what they're doing is, is, is they're actually kind of going against a lot of their own ethos. Instead, how can you enable different groups, different organizations to help do this curation that Facebook is trying to do on its own and let people rally around those organizations, these kind of entities? And then what Facebook can do is they can put rules and regulations in about what these entities need to do and, and, and how they need to operate themselves. And that's going to be a much better role for Facebook to, you know, as kind of like a federation where they can oversee these third parties that are then helping to do the curation. But clearly, Facebook isn't able to do this. And then when Facebook does do it and the, and the Vietnamese government doesn't like it, then they capitulate. I mean, there's so many problems with the position that Facebook has where they're trying to control all of this themselves that I don't think they need to do it this way. And it's clearly uh, not working. It's annoying their users. And it's, uh, you know, there's just a better way that they can do this. And in, a, I would say, a more open way, uh, as opposed to them having to do this all themselves. It's annoying that, A, the, the consumers and the producers and now government entities that, you know, that don't like this, which is a very precarious position for Facebook to be in. You would hope the U.S. government would be much more proactive, A, to support Facebook abroad, like in this case in, with Vietnam, but also to provide guidance in the United States about, again, how they should be balancing this, this kind of constant battle that they have with free speech. Let's go back to uh, what I would call, you know, a great acquisition by Amazon's part where they where they bought Twitch. The Twitch COO recently did an interview with CNBC. There are some interesting graphs that she puts up here, um, which I think kind of show this trend of what we're seeing 
with user behavior because of coronavirus. I mean, this graph, I guess it's correct. I don't know if it's correct. It, because the top line here, this blue line is saying active streamers. These are producers. The orange line, the smaller line, is saying active viewers, average viewers. So, you know, would you think that you'd actually have four or five X the number of streamers that you do viewers? That kind of seems bizarre, right? Anyway, taking that, that contradiction out of the analysis, still what you see are massive spikes come March 2020. They say they're growing at 50% month over month, which is bonkers growth. And you can see massive spikes both from streamers and viewers uh, because of what's happening where, I mean, there just aren't any sports and this viewership. And the COO, you know, I think rightly says, yes, there's obviously a huge spike in user behavior because of the pandemic. We think some of this will return and, you know, there will be a fall off um, once once uh, people can go out outside again and sports resume and other channels resume that people can watch alternative uh, media sources. But a lot of these user behaviors are going to stay the same, right? And they are acquiring a lot of new users. I mean, look at this. They are, they are, you know, almost doubling their viewer base in about a month. Um, so some of that will go away, but they're still going to retain a lot of that. And so we're seeing that in all different places uh, because of this just shift to remote, this shift to shelter in place, lack of sports, and all these kinds of things. So now the last topic is a fun one, which you're just seeing all these kind of crazy behaviors. You're seeing this, and I will play this video because this one is um, kind of fun. Fortnite launched a concert with Travis Scott. Travis Scott, big rapper, 12, over 12 million people watched this thing. So it's a video game. And all they did, and I'm going to show you, all they did is basically just say, well, you know, in the video game, you kill people, but you're not going to kill people. We're just going to play really cool visuals of Travis Scott. And then you're going to, um, you know, be going to be able to jump around and like have a good time. So that's literally what they did. Um, and they had over 12 million people watching and engaging, which was a record for Fortnite. I don't know if this is really your thing, but you know, they were saying, no, you can't ever get an experience like this anywhere else. And you can have these holographic images of Travis Scott. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, it's not even really live. I mean, they're just. It's not like Travis Scott is performing and this is all video, uh, you know, this is all programmed images of him. But whatever. The Fortnite community went crazy. People were then, you know, live streaming this. This video has a bunch of views uh, in and of itself. Video has 1.3 million views, just kind of letting people watch the concert that was in Fortnite. So you're just seeing all these hyper-accelerated ultra digital behaviors. And the thing I like about this is it's kind of an accelerate, you know, it's kind of saying it's a snapshot into the future. It could be deep into the future where we are operating in, in, in a purely digital environment, right? You can't leave your house and everything is kind of cut off. So now what do you do? How do you operate in that environment? You're going to see behaviors 
roll back to a kind of more normal balance. But we're certainly kind of getting a little behind the scenes glimpse of what behaviors could look like years down the road as you know we just go more and more digital in all aspects of our life. I don't know if we'll be using Fortnite to watch Travis Scott concerts in the future, but but some of this will remain the same and some of this is a good indicator uh, of where things are going. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Hope you're well. Hope you're safe. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you next week.